The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. I invite you to open your Bibles. Meet me in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. If you're new with us today, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John. We have completed chapter 19. We only have two chapters to go, but uh, chapter 19 ended with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Chapter 20 of John begins with the resurrection, which we will be celebrating here on Sunday, April 24. And so we've decided to delay our study of chapter 20 until then, until Easter morning. We'll jump back into it then and then just have a few weeks to finish the book of John. So I know you're all excited about that. We're going to actually go back and preach it over again because there's some things we missed. And so it'll be a number of years before we uh, make it our way through it again. But uh, today we, we are in the midst of a short little series that we've entitled The Glories of Calvary. And we have completed the account of the death of Christ. We have looked at what took place at the cross and the, the details of his death and his burial. What's absent from John chapter 19, however, is the, the full meaning of what took place at Calvary. What, what did Christ actually achieve at the cross? We have said that the cross is a multifaceted entity. And the more we look at those different facets of the cross, the more glorious the cross and the gospel becomes. And so we are taking some time to examine those different facets. As I said last week, as, it, as good as it is to ask the question, what would Jesus do? It is better that we ask the question, what did Jesus do? And so as great as WWJD is, we really need to be about WDJD. What did Jesus do? More important than us knowing what Jesus might do in a given situation today is knowing what he actually did upon the cross 2,000 years ago. And when that is properly understood, when, when we get that, when we grasp what took place at Calvary, it provides the foundation upon which we can live our lives of faithful service to him and we can keep the cross central in our lives. And that's really what we're trying to do. We are taking some time to examine this topic because we want to keep the main thing the main thing. That's the gospel. We want to live cross centered, Christ saturated lives. And there's no better way to do that than for us to keep the cross in our focus. This is important for us as we learn to live the cross centered life. We don't want the cross to become just an academic entity. We don't want to become so familiar with the cross and what took place there that it becomes just news. It's not good news anymore. It's just news. We want to guard against that. And so we want the gospel to impact our life on a daily basis. We want to stay near the cross. We want our affections freshly stirred to love and wonder and praise for Christ. We want our minds informed and our hearts inflamed with the gospel. C.J. Mahaney in his little book called The Cross-Centered Life has said the gospel is not one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. I love that. 
Everything we study about the Bible, all the topics that we can study as believers are offered to us within the walls of the glorious gospel. And so we need to immerse ourselves into that and to make the cross central in our daily lives. That's why he goes on to say, never be content with your current grasp of the gospel. The gospel is life permeating, world altering, universe changing truth. It has more facets than a diamond and its depths man will never exhaust. He's right. The gospel is life-permeating, world-altering, and universe-changing. To be a little autobiographical with you and somewhat anecdotal, let me tell you that this is true in Julie and I's life. The last two years, for us, the gospel has become so precious. It's been just in the last couple of years that I feel like I've discovered the gospel all over again. As we've been studying and talking about and reading just some incredible books and going back to the centrality of the cross in our life, I can tell you from firsthand account, it is revolutionary. It will transform how you think, how you act, how you live. If the gospel remains the focus right in front of you day after day and week after week, it will change how you live. It will change your parenting. It will change your witness. It will change your life. And for those reasons that I am compelled to to do this series on the glories of Calvary, this is is not just filler to get us to to chapter 20. This is the the content of the gospel. This is the the substance of the gospel. And so as a church, I, I want the gospel to become precious to us. I want us to stay near the cross I want us as a body of believers to see how the cross transforms our daily lives. It's not just something you can say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and put that on the shelf and say, I'll I'll pull that down someday. No, you need that today. And so I want us as a church family to see how the gospel is something we need, as Jerry Bridges says, to, to preach to ourselves daily. And so we're taking some time to examine some of those facets of the cross. We've asked and answered the question, who killed Christ? Four weeks ago, three weeks ago, we talked about the penal substitutionary nature of the atonement. And we talked about how central it is for us to understand that Christ was a vicarious substitution for our sins. Last week, we talked about him being our propitiation, how he satisfied God's wrath against our sin. And today, I want to turn to another facet of the gospel, and that is the topic of redemption. You cannot talk about the gospel without dealing with the topic and the wonderful doctrine of redemption. Redemption is really the heart and soul of what the gospel is, of what salvation is. And so you cannot talk about what it means to be a true believer. You cannot talk about heaven and hell. You cannot talk about salvation. You cannot talk about what it means to know God and truly be saved and have a relationship with him without talking about the topic of redemption. It's not a term that we're very familiar with. We don't use that term. It's not familiar language to us. It's not something that we use on a weekly basis. And for that reason, it's important for us to understand this glorious doctrine. But there's another reason for us to understand this. We have to understand the glorious doctrine of redemption because we live in a day that has basically a therapeutic approach to the gospel. Jesus will help your marriage. Jesus will make you happy. 
Jesus will bring you longing and fulfillment. He will make your life better. He will help you at work. He will give meaning to your life. He will bring you happiness and fulfillment. So you should give Jesus a try. This is the therapeutic gospel. That's not the real gospel. Or as we've seen recently, even here in our city, Jesus is just the better way to live. There's no hell. And so if you want to avoid bringing hell to earth today and you want to live as if heaven is in operation today, then you just need to live the better way. And Jesus is the better way. Everyone will ultimately wind up in heaven, whether through this life or the next. And so we just need to bring heaven on earth by living like Jesus because he's the good example. And so we need to follow his good example. Friends, that's not the gospel. Jesus is not a therapist nor is he simply a better way to live. Jesus is the Redeemer who has provided for us redemption from sin, from the curse of the law. He has made a way for us to be released from the captivity of sin to live for his great glory. This doctrine permeates the songs that we sing, right? We just sung it this morning. I will glory in my therapist, right? I will glory in my life coach, No, I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer. That's what we glory in. The one who has provided redemption. And so the heart and the soul of the gospel is redemption. And this idea is permeated all throughout Scripture. Go to the Old Testament. And the story of the Exodus is the story of redemption. God delivered his people from the land of Egypt by redemption. He delivered them. He he made the way for them to be delivered out of the land. Psalm 19, verse 14 says that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 78, verse 5 says, and they remembered that God was their rock and God the most high, their redeemer. Remember what Job said? Job 19, verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And Boaz functions in the Old Testament as a type of Christ. He's known as the kinsman Redeemer, right? And so it's no wonder then that we come to the New Testament and we find this same motif and the same doctrinal emphasis on on, on redemption flowing throughout the New Testament. In fact, Christ himself came saying in Mark 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to pay the redemption price for many. Romans 3, 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verse 6, he says, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. And so this, this is the glory of the cross. This is the central message of the gospel that Christ redeemed us. He paid the ransom to remove our sin, to remove us from the curse of the law so that we can be brought back from judgment. There are many places we can go in the New Testament to deal with this topic. I've chosen Galatians chapter 4 because I think here Paul deals with great clarity and conciseness this doctrine of redemption. This is Paul's great defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In this book, Paul is declaring for us that salvation does not come by works. It does not come by keeping the law. Salvation comes only and solely by justification by grace through faith alone. 
And in this wonderful book, the theme of redemption pervades as Christ is the one who has made our justification possible. I want you to follow along as I read Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to focus this morning on verses 4 through 7. Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But... When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In these verses, Paul provides for us four truths which underscore Christ's glorious work in redemption. Four truths which demonstrate what Christ has done in redeeming sinners. And I want you to consider these this morning. And I want you to put your your thinking caps on. And I want you to have a soft heart and a tender heart towards the things of the Lord this morning. That you would not just think about these things theologically. But that your heart would be gripped with what Christ has done for us through redemption. Four truths. Let me show these to you. First, number one, God's gift initiates our redemption. When we start talking about redemption, we have to start with the person who started our redemption, which is God himself. And so God's gift initiates our redemption. Look with me in verse 3. Paul says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage, under the elemental things of the world. So here he's saying, we as children of the devil, as those who were once according to the things of this world, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We were enslaved to those fundamental things of the principles of the world. Now look how verse 4 begins. But, that may be the best word in the whole Bible. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth, His son. At just the right time. At just the exact moment. At just the the right timing in redemptive history. God sent forth his son. And what I want you to see from this is that God initiates our redemption. That God is the one who in the proper time and in the right way and exactly on schedule according to his timetable. God launched the plan of redemption. It was right religiously. The Jews were in the land. They were led by their Pharisee leaders. They, they, there were synagogues that were in place. They, 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 it was right religiously for Christ to come. It was also right politically. The Romans were in charge of the whole region. And there was Pax Romana. There was Roman peace that was over all the land. And there were intricate systems of roads through which the apostles and the preachers could freely travel around the Roman Empire. It was right religiously. It was right, right politically. It was also right culturally. It was a common language. Greek could be spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. The common language could spread the the gospel. And so everything was right time-wise. All these factors made the timing of Christ's arrival when he came perfect. Don't you love that? 
It was exactly the time that God the Father had planned for the arrival of the Son. His timing was perfect. At just the right time, God sent forth His Son to bring about redemption. By the way, some of you are in situations right now and you're saying, God won't do what I hope He does. And it's been so long and I've been waiting so long for Him to do this. His timing's always right. He's never too early. He's never too late. God's timing is always perfect. At the right time, God sent forth his son. Verse 4. Born of a woman. See, God had to come as a man. He had to come in human form. He didn't need to come in as an angel. If he came as an angel, he couldn't redeem man. If he came as an animal, he couldn't redeem man. He had to come as a man to redeem man. And so he's born of a woman so he could represent man to God. And he was born under the law. I want you to underline that. That's a very important phrase because it's going to come into play here in just a few minutes as we look at the next verse. He was born under the law. And the law here is God's law. The law here is God's instructions from the Old Testament. These are his laws as he laid down and Christ came under that law. He came under that law. He came in order to save the people who were under that law. We're all under that law. Every single person who's ever been born is under God's law. And so Christ, in order to redeem those who are under the law, came also under the law. He was required to follow it, just as we are. He was required to obey it perfectly, just as we are. But unlike every other person who's ever lived, Christ did it perfectly. Christ obeyed that law wholly, totally, completely, without one infraction. In fact, that righteousness, that perfection that Christ demonstrated and under the law was communicated to us, was imputed to us at the moment we believe. And so the glory of Christ's life is not just his death, it's his perfect life as well, that when we come to Christ, all of his perfections are credited to our account. And so we can stand before God holy and blameless, not because we are, but because the perfections of Christ, as he obeyed God perfectly under the law, are credited to us. This is how God initiates our redemption. He did it first by sending Christ. And what I want you to see once again is the sovereignty of God and salvation. God initiated this process. God was the one who went after sinners and their sin and their death to bring life. Number two, and we'll spend a little bit more time on these next two. Number two is that our condition necessitates our redemption. Our condition necessitates our redemption. Notice verse 5. Paul says, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. And so here's Christ who's been given as a gift from God at the proper time, born of a woman, born under the law. And Paul says in verse 5, in order that, which always means purpose or result. Here's why this took place. In order that he might redeem, there's the word, redeem those who were under the law. You need to understand Your condition prior to Christ, my condition prior to Christ, the condition of every single person who has ever lived without Christ is the condition of being under the law. Hupo namas, under law. This is God's righteous standard of conduct. And the law in your Bible may be capitalized as it is in mine to demonstrate that this is God's law. This is not like the normal rules and laws of the land. No, this is God's law. And Because it's God's law, he has the right and the authority to lay down expectations and to lay down regulations and to lay down instructions. And he expects them to be obeyed fully and totally. 
And so the law that he speaks of here is all that stuff in Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so when you immerse yourself in your quiet times in Leviticus and you're just loving Leviticus, that's God's law. That all those regulations and the moral law and the ceremonial law and the civil law and all that stuff, that's all God's, God's law. It's bigger than just the Ten Commandments, which is part of it. It's everything associated with them in the Old Testament. Jesus himself said that the law can be condensed down to two commandments. Number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the summary of the law of God. And this is the law that we are all under. And it's not hard for us to understand this. We all live under law, right? You, you live under driving laws. Some of you break those driving laws on a regular basis, right? As you exceed the speed limit, as, as you park in places you're not supposed to or run red lights or whatever that may be. We're under the law. We're also under tax laws. Tax day is coming up very soon. We're under tax laws. We, we cannot lie on our taxes. We have to tell the truth on our taxes. We, don't, we are under those laws. We're under state laws. We're under federal laws. We're under law. And so it's not hard for us to understand that we're also under God's law. And that law is intended to regulate our behavior. Here's what I want you to understand. God expects perfect obedience to that law. God demands in his righteousness, in his holiness, in his, in his sovereignty, in his power, he demands that that law be kept perfectly, wholly, completely, entirely, without exception. That's what he requires. And if we don't, we're under a curse. We're required to fill his laws perfectly. And if we don't, we put ourselves under God's judgment. I think most people think of the law as kind of just a good suggestion. Right? The law is, is kind of something good to shoot for. It's something that you want to kind of strive for. And, and if you can hit 90% or maybe even 95%, you're good. And God will look at you and say, well done. He'll pat you on the back and he'll say, good job, tiger. You're going you're gonna to make it because you, you're at 90, 95%. That's how we think God looks at the law. Like It's not a hard and fast rule. And if we fail to obey it, God will be kind because we tried really hard. If that's your understanding of the law, can I just say this as clearly as I can? It's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. God demands perfection. God requires perfect obedience to his law. It's a hard law. It's a fast law. And God requires exact obedience to it. And I know what y'all are thinking right now. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. And you're right. At the Air Force Academy where I went to college, they had a minimum graduation requirement of 2.0. You had to maintain at least a C average in order to graduate from the academy. And there were times, it seems every semester, that we heard of people being on academic probation because they weren't maintaining the 2.0. And there are other institutions that maybe have different graduation requirements. But listen, there's no school that requires a 4.0 to graduate, right? And aren't you glad for that? Because none of us would graduate from college. But God does. God requires 4.0s. He requires perfection. To enter into a relationship with him. He requires that we keep the law perfectly. 
But here's the problem. We don't. None of us does. And so this is what I want you to understand. This is our condition. We are under law. And because we are required to obey it fully and keep it perfectly, and we don't, we're under the curse of the law. And not even a self-righteous Pharisee like Paul could keep the law perfectly, could he? You remember in Romans chapter 7 where Paul is writing, he says, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. So here's Paul saying, hey, I'm good to go. I'm a pretty righteous guy. And then the law comes and said, you shall not covet. And Paul starts coveting. He starts wanting things. He starts jealously desiring what other people have. And he says, it's this law that has caused this sin to become alive in me. He says, when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Here's Paul, a self-righteous Pharisee who thought he had it all together. And even he could not keep the law perfectly. Remember what James said? James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Listen, you have one infraction, one small lapse in your ability to keep the law, and James says you're guilty of the whole thing. One little white lie makes you guilty of the whole law. One theft of a piece of candy when you're a kid has rendered you guilty. Any little angry word, any bitter thought, and you're guilty of the whole thing. So here's the problem. We are under law. And because we're under law, we are required to keep that law perfectly. The problem is we don't. And so because of that, it brings a curse. Now I want you to hold your finger in chapter 4, turn back to chapter 3. And I want you to see this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, because this fits right in with Paul's argument. Galatians 3.10, he says, as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. He says, if you're going to try and earn your way to salvation, you are under a curse. Why? For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. See what he's saying? This is the standard. He says, cursed are you if you do not abide by most things. No, it's all things. He says, everything written in the book of the law, if you do not perform them, every single one, perfectly to a T, he says, you're guilty. Cursed. The word cursed here is epicaterados, which is an intense form, which means not just a little cursed, it means really cursed. It means to be exposed to divine vengeance, to, to lie under God's curse. It refers to something that's doomed or damned. Something that's devoted to destruction and headed for judgment. Friends, this is us. This is the curse of the law. <clears throat> in fact, we don't have time to do this, but back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God lists blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. You should read it today <clears throat> after your big lunch. Go home, open Deuteronomy 28 and read it. Because the first part of the chapter begins by saying, if you obey all these things, if you obey my law perfectly, then here's what God's going to do for you. He says, the Lord God will set you high above all the nations. Blessed you shall be in the city, and blessed you shall be in the country, and blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you go out and when you come in, and blessed shall be you when you arise. And lay down. 
Some amazing blessings. God says, just keep my law perfectly and you will be so blessed. And then God turns around and says this. Same chapter. But it shall be that if you do not obey the law, the Lord your God, to observe all his commandments and the statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in the city, and cursed you shall be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed you shall be when you come in and when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses and confusion and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And he goes on to say that he's going to smite you with fever and inflammation and fiery heat and you will become carcasses for the birds of the air and he will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with the tumors and with the scab and with the itch. Nice, huh? You shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord has given to you. He's saying it's going to become so bad that you're going to turn to cannibalism under the curse of God. So these are the consequences. These are the consequences for those who break God's law. Now this is for Israel, I understand that, but think of the eternal consequences. So here's our problem. Back in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, it says we are those who are under the law. And Galatians 3.10 says that cursed is everyone under the law who does not do everything written in the book of the law. So if you don't fulfill every single obligation of the law, he says you are under the curse of God, you are under the wrath of God, this is our condition prior to Christ. And you're here saying, I've never felt that. It doesn't matter whether you felt it or not, it's true. Maybe you've never understood that you were under the curse of the law. Maybe you've never understood really what it meant to fall short of God's glory. Here's what he says, and here's what he means by that. He says, if you don't fulfill every obligation of the law, then you are under my righteous judgment. You are under my curses, God says. This is the problem with the law. The law in itself is good because it's intended to lead us to Christ, but the law condemns us. The the, the law puts us under God's curse. The the law requires perfection, which we cannot maintain. The law doesn't recognize any good works on our own. You can't try and say, well, I'll make it up next time and I'll I'll try and do enough good things to make it. No, you can't do that. The, The law doesn't recognize that. The law demands perfection. It demands obedience, but the law does not enable you to obey it. The law offers no mercy. The law offers no hope. And as a result of this, we're all under the curse of the law. And if you're going to understand redemption, you have to start here. You have to understand that we're under a curse. We're under God's law, which we have never fully, totally, completely obeyed. And this is what we need to be redeemed from. The curse of the law. And the sin which has caused us to become a curse under God's law. This is our condition, friends. We need a divine rescue. We need to be set free. We need to be liberated from our captivity. We need to be set free from this curse and the sin that enslaves us. This is our condition that necessitates our redemption. Number three, now that you're thoroughly depressed, Christ's death secures our redemption. 
And this is where the good news comes in. Enter Jesus Christ. His death secures our redemption. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the glorious news of the good news of Christ. Right here. Look at Galatians 4. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law. There it is. So that He might set us free. That He might liberate us from our captivity of being under the law. Friends, this is the glory of redemption. This is the glory of the gospel. That those who were once under the curse of the law can now be set free from that curse because Christ has redeemed us and paid the ransom to set us free. I want you to see that word redeem in verse 5. In order that he might redeem those who are under the law. And the idea here is to buy out or to release from captivity by the payment of a price. This is the idea. And I want you to imagine just that in that century and in that setting, the word was often used to refer to a master who set their slaves free by paying the ransom price. Some gracious masters would go to the market. They would see a slave on a slave block. And that gracious master would pay the ransom price. That slave would be set free. It's known as manumission. This is the idea. The ransom has to do with setting someone free that is held in captivity. They've been redeemed. So the word ransom and the word redemption are closely related terms. And in our culture today, we often associate ransom with a kidnapping. The most famous kidnapping for ransom story in this country is that of Charles Lindbergh's son back in 1932. Charles Lindbergh was the first man to fly nonstop across the Atlantic, and so his name was well known. One man came and put a ladder up against Charles Lindbergh's house, climbed to the second floor and took his 18-month-old son out of the house and demanded a ransom, $50,000. Pay it or he dies. Unfortunately, this man killed Lindbergh's child and received the ransom. This is the idea of a ransom. A ransom is the price that is paid to set someone free. And so the word redemption and ransom are closely related. The word ransom refers to the price that is paid to release someone who's captive. And the word redemption refers to the act of then releasing that person because the ransom has been paid. And that's the idea right here. Verse 5, he says, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. He says, Christ came to pay the ransom to set us free. Literally to buy back those who were enslaved. Christ on the cross redeemed us by paying the price to take us off the slavery block and set us free. So this is the glory of redemption. Turn back to chapter 3 and verse 13. Look what it says. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And so here Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that curse that we were under, that slavery that we were under by not being able to keep God's law perfectly. Christ has redeemed us. He's set us free from that because his death satisfied God's requirement for a ransom to be paid. That's why all throughout the New Testament it's, it's spoken of. Colossians 1 verse 14, in whom we have redemption 
the forgiveness of sins. Titus 2 verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Hebrews 9 verse 15 says, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. And so Christ's death was the redeeming sacrifice. It set us free. You say, how? Look at verse 13 again. Galatians 3.13. This, this, this is amazing. If you're not paying attention, okay, come back. Listen, pay attention. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. You understand that? We were under the curse. We, we invoked God's judgment upon us. We brought his own righteous indignation upon ourselves because we couldn't keep his law perfectly. And so we were under God's curse. But now it says Christ has redeemed us from that curse by becoming a curse for us. That's good. That's redemption. And this is what makes the gospel so amazing that Christ actually stood in our place to receive the curse that we deserve. Look at verse 13. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. As Christ is hanging on the cross. And those three hours of darkness come over the land. God was pouring out his righteous indignation against sin. Our sin. Christ is hanging there, and as he's hanging there, he's actually being cursed. He's he's entering hell, as it were, and he's receiving the full hatred of God against our sin. And Christ is there exhausting and absorbing all of the wrath of God against the curse that we deserved. That's why I said a couple weeks ago, if you take away substitution as the core of the gospel, there is no gospel. He was our substitute, bearing the curse, bearing the brunt of God's wrath against us, breaking his law. And only Christ could satisfy it because only he was perfect. He was the only one who's ever fulfilled God's law perfectly. And so as he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is he saying that? Because he's a curse. He's damned. He's in hell. As the righteous wrath of God is poured out on Christ. That's why he could say it's finished. What was finished? The righteous indignation of God against Christ, who is bearing our sin and the curse that was reserved for us. This is what happened at the cross. This is what Jesus did. So that's why I said earlier, it's not so much what what would Jesus do today, it's what did Jesus do? Because this is the basis for our life. This is the basis for our salvation. This is the basis for our forgiveness. This is what was accomplished on the cross. As I said, only Christ could have fulfilled this. Had Christ himself broken the law of God even once, he himself would have been under the same curse that we are under. And so only Christ could have perfectly fulfilled God's law. And so only Christ could then remove the curse for us by redeeming us. What was the price? 
You ever thought about that? There's a ransom that needed to be paid. What was the price? In the kidnapping of Lindbergh's son, it was $50,000. What was the price for our redemption? It's blood. It's blood. Blood which symbolizes death. Listen to some of these passages. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Hebrews 9.12 And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The ransom price is blood. 1 Peter 3 118, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He says you were not redeemed with cheap trinkets. No, the ultimate price was paid for your forgiveness and your redemption, which is the blood of Christ. Friends, this is what makes the gospel so glorious. We have a Savior who perfectly fulfilled the law and who in our our place bore the wrath of God by shedding His blood, by dying in our place to remove the curse, to ransom us, and to redeem us. So the ransom price is blood, which is significant of death. Who did Christ pay the ransom to? You ever think about that? To whom did Christ pay the ransom? There are some today who would point that Christ paid the ransom to Satan. This is known as the ransom theory of the atonement. And it holds that in the transaction on the cross, Jesus actually paid the ransom price to Satan. And the idea comes from this, that in our understanding of kidnapping and ransom, the kidnapper takes someone captive and demands the ransom to be paid to them. And so people will then often read into that and they say, well, Christ must have paid the ransom to Satan because Satan was the one who captured us and enslaved us. And in our sin, we become obligated to Satan. So then Jesus must have paid his ransom to Satan. It's not true. Because if Jesus paid the ransom to Satan, then Satan laughed all the way to the bank. And Satan's the victor, not Christ. You know who Jesus paid the ransom to? God. God. See, when the Bible speaks of ransom, it speaks of that ransom being paid not to a criminal, but to the one who is owed the price of redemption. Who's owed the price of redemption in in our breaking of God's plan and the breaking of his commandments? God is the offended party. We broke his law. God is the offended party and we must either pay it ourselves or have someone else pay our ransom for us. And so Christ, as he offers himself in sacrifice on the cross, pays the ransom to none other than God the Father. And friends, this is what makes redemption so glorious. He redeemed us. He ransomed us. He paid the price to secure our freedom and release us from the curse. And that's why we need to kneel in worship and praise and adoration of Christ. That's not the end of the story. There's more. Number four. Spiritual adoption 
demonstrates our redemption. Spiritual adoption demonstrates our redemption. I love adoption. I love adoption because it's how God used to build our family. I've said this before, but we have five living illustrations of spiritual adoption running around our house and making lots of noise. And every time we look at them and see them, there goes another one. There goes another one. Another picture of God's grace in adopting us. Watch this, verse 5, Galatians 4, 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive, watch this, the adoption as sons. Do you get that? This is glorious. God did all of that so that those who believe and express saving faith in Christ could be adopted into his family. Let that sink in. You were once cursed under God's judgment, breaking his law, bringing upon yourselves God's righteous indignation. And here God is saying that Christ took our place, redeemed us, paid the ransom so that we could be adopted into his family. That's amazing. I want you to notice that six times in these verses the word son occurs. Two times it refers to Christ. Verse 4, God sent forth his son. Verse 6, God sent forth the spirit of his son. So two of those six times it refers to Christ. Four times it refers to us. Verse 5, adoption as sons. Verse 6, because you are sons. Verse 7, therefore you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a, a son, then an heir through God. Don't miss the connection between these uses of the word son. God sent his son so that we could become his sons. All because of the death and resurrection and work of Christ upon the cross. And to prove that we've been adopted, look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You want to know that you've been adopted? You know you've been adopted when the spirit of God lives in you. You know, when we adopted our five children, every single time the courts gave us a legal document stating that we possess legal guardianship of these kids. We have them. In fact, we were just looking through them the other day. We had to submit some paperwork for adoption, and, and so we pulled out these, these certificates which demonstrate a legal adoption has taken place. And if anyone ever questions it, we just pull out the paper and says, look, we got the document. They're ours. Back off. And you know what God did? God did the same thing. He, he gives an official declaration stating that these children are mine. But it's not a piece of paper. You know what it is? It's himself, the Spirit of God. He places his spirit within our hearts to affirm that we have been adopted into his family. Into his family. That, that's glorious. He has given a demonstration of the fact that we are his own now. We've been bought, we've been purchased, and the stamp of approval upon us as being adopted into his family is his very spirit which dwells within us. So that we can say, look at verse 6. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The result of this is that the Spirit of God dwells within us. He, he makes us His own. He, he lives in the hearts of believers. He brings us into this intimate relationship with Christ so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, which is Aramaic for Daddy. 
my favorite part of my day is coming home. And there are five kids that run out of the door all screaming, Daddy's home. And then they want to push the horn on my car and make all kinds of noise. But they come out of the door and they rush out and they say, Daddy's home. And guys, this is what Jesus is saying. This is what, what, what Paul is saying. He said, when, when you're adopted by God, you have been given the Holy Spirit so that you can call out to God and say, Daddy, Father. It's glorious. Not only that, look at verse 7. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The consummation of all of this is we get to be heirs with Christ and heir through God, which means we get to inherit every single thing that Christ inherits. So everything that the Father promises to the Son, God also promises to us because now we become a partaker in that inheritance through our union with Christ. And so we get salvation and we get glory and we get heaven and we get the universe and we get God himself as an inheritance as an heir of God. Friends, you're rich. you realize this? You're rich. Because you have moved from being under the curse of God, under his judgment and under his wrath for breaking his law. You have moved not just to neutral. You have moved into an, a relationship with God through Christ, having the spirit dwelling within you. And now you have an entire inheritance waiting you one day. This is the glory of redemption. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Gospel for Real Life, he uses this analogy. I want you to imagine a judge who has sentenced a man to death. And this man is on death row. He's in solitary confinement, 23 hours a day. All appeals have been exhausted. There is no way this guy is getting off death row. And the date of his execution is drawing nearer. And then one day, that same judge walks in, walks in with papers in his hand. And they're release papers. They're, they're pardon papers. They're papers that will release the man from prison. And he goes to the man who's in solitary confinement and he says, Sir, here's the papers that secure your release. You're free. You're free to go. But in his other hand, are more papers. And those are adoption papers. And he says to this man, not only are you free to go, but I'm taking you into my family. You're going to be my son. I'm going to treat you just like my other kids. I'm going to give you all the rights and the privileges and the benefits of being a part of our family. That's redemption. God has freed us through Christ. He's pardoned us. And then he's handed paperwork to us and says, why don't you come and be a part of my family? Friends, this is the heart and the soul of the gospel. And so what this means is you're never, if you're in Christ, you are never under God's curse again. Never. And even when you sin today, Tomorrow, when you sin, if you feel condemned by your sin, you make a beeline to the cross. And you say, yes, I did just sin, and I know that uh, that's not pleasing to the Lord, but you can plead your case, free, pardoned, Father, forgiven. Friends, this is what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You make a beeline for that cross. 
because you are no longer under the curse. Because of Christ, who became a curse for us and redeemed those who are under the law. Father, these are staggering truths. These are our truths we, we confess we can't really get our minds around. They're, they're far too wonderful. They're, they're far too glorious. They're, they're far too magnificent for our little finite human minds to comprehend. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you that it was there that the ransom price was paid, that the debt was satisfied, that our curse has been reversed. And not only do we get to be free and pardoned and set free from our captivity, Lord, we also get to be adopted into your family. Oh God, we confess we don't understand this. And it makes us bow in worship and adoration and praise to you. Lord, if there are some here this morning who, who've never experienced redemption, God, may today be the day. God, open their eyes to the fact that they're under your curse because they've broken your law. And then, Father, implant within their heart a, a deep understanding of what Christ has done. And God, may we see some today turning from their sin and turning from the curse that, that they were under and embracing Christ the glory of God and the face of Christ and the work of Christ upon the cross. Lord, may any here this morning who've never truly done that know the joy of having their, having their burden released and being saved, forgiven, redeemed, and adopted. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.